Section 10 of The Morals, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Morals, Volume 2, by Plutarch. Translated by several hands. Corrected and revised by William W. Goodwin. How to Know a Flatterer from a Friend, Part 2. But we will reserve these remarks for a more proper place. In the meantime, I must not omit the other artifice observable in his imitation, which is this, that if at any time he counterfeit the good qualities of his friend, he immediately yields him the preeminence, whereas there is no competition, no emulation or envy amongst true friends, but whether they are equally accomplished or not, they bear the same even unconcerned temper of mind towards each other. But the flatterer, remembering that he is but to act another's part, pretends only to such strokes as fall short of the original, and is willing to confess himself outdone in anything but his vices, wherein alone he claims the precedency to himself, as, if the man he is to wheedle be difficult and morose, he is quite overrun with colour, if something superstitious, he is a perfect enthusiast, if a little in love, for his part he is most desperately smitten. I laughed heartily at such a passage, says one, but I had liked to have died with laughter, says the other. But now, in speaking of any laudable qualities, he inverts his style, as, I can run fast enough, says he, but you perfectly fly. I can sit a horse tolerably well, but, alas, what's that to this hippocentaur for good horsemanship? I have a tolerable good genius for poetry, and am none of the worst versifiers of the age. But thunder is the language of you gods, not mine. And thus, at the same time, he obliges his friend both in approving of his abilities by his owning of them, and in confessing him incomparable in his way by himself coming short of his example. These, then, are the distinguishing characters of a friend and flatterer, as far as concerns the counterfeit resemblance betwixt them. But because, as we have before observed, it is common to them both to please, for a good man is no less taken with the company of his friends than an ill one is with the flatterers, let us discriminate them here too. And the way will be to have an eye to the end to which they direct the satisfaction they create, which may be thus illustrated. Your perfumed oils have a fine odoriferous scent, and so it may be have some medicines too but with this difference, that the former are prepared barely for the gratification of the sense, whilst the other, besides their odour, purge, heal, and fatten. Again, the colours used by painters are certainly very florid, and the mixture agreeable, and yet so it is in some medicinal compositions too. Wherein, then, lies the difference? Why, in the end or use for which they are designed, the one purely for pleasure, the other for profit? In like manner, the civilities of one friend to another, besides the main point of their honesty and mutual advantage, are always attended with an overplus of delight and satisfaction. Nay, they can now and then indulge themselves the liberty of an innocent diversion, a collation, or a glass of wine, and, believe me, can be as cheerful and jocund as the best, all which they use only as sauce to give a relish to the more serious and weighty concernments of life to which purpose was that of the poet, with pleasing chat they did delight each other, as likewise this too, 
nothing could part our pleasure or our love. But the whole business and design of a flatterer is continually to entertain the company with some pastime or other, a little jest, a story well told, or a comical action, and, in a word, he thinks he can never overact the diverting part of conversation, whereas the true friend, proposing no other end to himself than the bare discharge of his duty, is sometimes pleasant, and as often, it may be, disagreeable, neither solicitously coveting the one, nor industriously avoiding the other, if he judge it the more seasonable and expedient. For, as a physician, if need require, will throw in a little saffron or spikenard to qualify his patient's dose, and will now and then bathe him and feed him up curiously, and yet again another time will prescribe him castor, or poly which the strongest scent doth yield of all the physic plants which cloth the field, or perhaps will oblige him to drink an infusion of hellebore, proposing neither the deliciousness of the one nor the nauseousness of the other as his scope and design, but only conducting him by these different methods to one and the same end, the recovery of his health. In like manner the real friend sometimes leads his man gently on to virtue by kindness, by pleasing and extolling him, as he and Homer, Dear Teucer, thou who art in high command, thus draw the bow with thy unerring hand. And as another speaking of Ulysses, How can I doubt, while great Ulysses stands, to lend his counsel and assist our hands? And again, when he sees correction requisite, he will check him severely, as, Whither, O Menelaus, wouldst thou run, and tempt a fate which prudence bids thee shun? And perhaps he is forced another time to second his words with actions, as Menedemus reclaimed his friend Asclepiades's son, a dissolute and debauched young gentleman, by shutting his doors upon him and not vouchsafing to speak to him. And Arcesilaus forbade Battus his school for having abused Cleanthes in a comedy of his, but after he had made satisfaction and an acknowledgment of his fault, took him into favour again. For we ought to grieve and afflict our friend with design merely of serving him, not of making a rupture betwixt us, and must apply our reprehensions only as pungent and acute medicines, with no other intent than the recovery of the patient. And therefore a friend, like a skilful musician who, to tune his instrument, winds up one string and lets down another, grants some things and refuses others according as their honesty or usefulness prompt him, whereby he often pleases, but is sure always to profit. Whereas the parasite, who is continually upon the same humouring string, knows not how to let fall a cross word or commit a disobliging action, but servilely complies with all your desires, and is always in the tune you ask for. And therefore, as Xenophon reports of Agasilaus, that he took some delight in being praised by those who would upon occasion dispraise him too, so ought we to judge that only he rejoices and pleases us really as a friend who will, when need requires, thwart and contradict us. We must suspect their conversation, who aim at nothing but our gratification, without the least intermixture of reprehension. And indeed, we ought to have ready upon such occasions that repartee of a Lacedaemonian, who, hearing King Carolus, highly extolled for an excellent person, asked, how could he be so good a man who was never severe to an ill one? They tell us that gadflies creep into the ears of bulls and ticks into those of dogs, 
but I am sure the parasite lays so close siege and sticks so fast to the ears of the ambitious with the repeated praises of their worth, that it is no easy matter to shake him off again. And therefore it highly concerns them to have their apprehensions awake and upon the guard, critically to remark whether the high characters such men lavish out are intended for the person or the thing they would be thought to commend. And we may indeed suppose them more peculiarly designed for the things themselves, if they bestow them on persons absent rather than present, if they covet and aspire after the same qualities themselves which they magnify in others, if they admire the same perfections in the rest of mankind as well as in us, and we are never found to falter and belie, either in word or action, the sentiments they have owned. And, what is the surest criterion in this case, we are to examine whether or no we are not really troubled at or ashamed of the commission of those very things for which they applaud us, and could not wish that we had said or acted the quite contrary, for our own consciences, which are above the reach of passion, and will not be put upon by all the sly artifices of flattery, will witness against us, and spurn at an undeserved commendation. But I know not how it comes to pass that several persons had rather be pitied than comforted in adversity and when they have committed a fault, look upon those as enemies and informers who endeavour to chide and lecture them into a sense of their guilt, but caress and embrace them as friends who soothe them up in their vices. Indeed, they who continue their applauses to so inconsiderable a thing as a single action, a wise saying, or a smart jest, do only a little present mischief." but they who from single acts proceed to debauch even the habits of the mind with their immoderate praises are like those treacherous servants who, not content to rob the common heap in the granary, filch even that which was chosen and reserved for seed. For, whilst they entitle vice to the name of virtue, they corrupt that prolific principle of action, the genius and disposition of the soul, and poison the fountain whence the whole stream of life derives. Thucydides observes that in the time of war and sedition the names of good and evil are wont to be confounded according to men's judgment of circumstances, as foolhardiness is called a generous espousal of a friend's quarrel, a provident delay is nicknamed cowardice, modesty a mere pretext for unmanliness, a prudent slow inspection into things downright laziness. In like manner, if you observe it, a flatterer terms a profuse man liberal, a timorous man wary, a mad fellow quick and prompt, a stingy miser frugal, an amorous youngster kind and good-natured, a passionate proud fool stout, and a mean-spirited slave courteous and observing. As Plato somewhere remarks that a lover who is always a flatterer of his beloved object styles a flat-nose lovely and graceful, a hawk-nose princely, the black manly, and the fair the offspring of the gods, and observes particularly that the appellation of honey-pale is nothing but the daub of a gallant who is willing to set off his mistress's pale complexion. Now, indeed, an ugly fellow bantered into an opinion that he is handsome, or a little man magnified into tall and portly, cannot lie long under the mistake, nor receive any great injury by the cheat. But when vice is extolled by the name of virtue, so that a man is induced to sin not only without regret, but with joy and triumph, and is hardened beyond the modesty of a blush for his enormities, this sort of flattery, I say, has been fatal even to whole kingdoms. 
It was this that ruined Sicily by styling the tyranny of Dionysius and Phalaris nothing but justice and a hatred of villainous practices. It was this that overthrew Egypt by palliating the king's effeminacy, his yellings, his enthusiastic rants, and his beating of drums, with the more plausible names of true religion and the worship of the gods. It was this that had very nigh ruined the stanch Roman temper by extenuating the voluptuousness, the luxury, the sumptuous shows and public profuseness of Antony into the softer terms of humanity, good nature, and the generosity of a gentleman who knew how to use the greatness of his fortune. What but the charms of flattery made Ptolemy turn piper and fiddler? What else put on Nero's buskins and brought him on the stage? Have we not known several princes, if they sung a tolerable treble, termed Apollos, when they drank stoutly, styled Bacchuses, and upon wrestling, fencing, or the like, immediately dubbed by the name of Hercules, and hurried on by those empty titles to the commission of those acts which were infinitely beneath the dignity of their character? And therefore it will be then more especially our concern to look about us when a flatterer is upon the strain of praising which he is sensible enough of, and accordingly avoids all occasion of suspicion when he attacks us on that side. If indeed he meets with a tawdry fop or a dull country clown in a leathern jacket, he plays upon him with all the liberty imaginable. As Trithius, by way of flattery, insulted and triumphed over the sottishness of Bias, when he told him that he had outdrunk King Alexander himself, and that he was ready to die of laughter at his encounter with the Cyprian, but if he chance to fall upon an apprehensive man, who can presently smoke a design, especially if he thinks he has an eye upon him and stands upon his guard, he does not immediately assault him with an open panegyric, but first fetches a compass, and softly winds about him, till he has in some measure tamed the untractable creature and brought it to his hand. For he either tells him what high characters he has heard of him abroad, introducing, as the rhetoricians do, some third person, how upon the exchange the other day he happily overheard some strangers and persons of great gravity and worth, who spake extremely honourably of him, and professed themselves much his admirers, or else he forges some frivolous and false accusation of him, and then coming in all haste, as if he had heard it really reported, asks him seriously if he can call to mind where he said or did such a thing. And immediately upon his denial of the matter of fact, which he has reason enough to expect, he takes occasion to fall upon the subject of his commendation. I wondered indeed, says he, to hear that you should calumniate your friend, who never used to speak ill of your enemies, that you should endeavour to rob another man of his estate, who so generously spent your own. Others again, like painters who enhance the lustre and beauty of a curious piece by the shades which surround it, slyly extol and encourage men in their vices by deriding and railing at their country virtues. Thus, in the company of the debauched, the covetous, and the extortioner, they run down temperance and modesty as mere rusticity, and justice and contentment with their present condition argue nothing in their phrase but a dastardly spirit and an impotence to action. If they fall into the acquaintance of lubbers who love laziness and ease, they stick not to explode the necessary administration of public affairs as a troublesome intermeddling in other men's business, and a desire to bear office as a useless empty thirst after a name. To wheedle in with an orator, they scout a philosopher, 
and who so gracious as they with the jilts of the town by laughing at wives who are faithful to their husbands' beds as impotent and country-bred? And, what is the most egregious stratagem of all the rest, the flatterer shall traduce himself rather than want a fair opportunity to command another, as wrestlers put their body in a low posture that they may the better worse their adversaries. I am a very coward at sea, says he, impatient of any fatigue, and cannot digest the least ill language. But my good friend here fears no colours, can endure all hardness, is an admirable good man, bears all things with great patience and evenness of temper. If he meets with one who abounds in his own sense, and affects to appear rigid and singular in his judgment, and, as an argument of the rectitude and steadiness thereof, is always telling you of that of Homer, let not your praise or dispraise lavish be, good Diomedes, when you speak of me. He applies a new engine to move this great weight. To such a one he imparts some of his private concerns, as being willing to advise with the ablest counsel. He has indeed a more intimate acquaintance with others, but he was forced to trouble him at present. For to whom should we poor witless men have recourse, says he, when we stand in need of advice? Or whom else should we trust? And as soon as he has delivered his opinion, whether it be to the purpose or not, he takes his leave of him with a seeming satisfaction, as if he had received an answer from an oracle. Again, if he perceives a man pretends to be master of a style, he presently presents him with something of his own composing, requesting him to peruse and correct it. Thus Mithridates could no sooner set up for a physician than some of his acquaintance desired to be cut and cauterized by him a piece of flattery that extended beyond the fallacy of bare words, they imagining that he must needs take it as an argument of their great opinion of his skill that they durst trust himself in his hands. For things divine take many shapes. Now to discover the cheat which these insinuations of our own worth might put upon us, a thing that requires no ordinary circumspection, the best way will be to give him a very absurd advice and to animadvert as impertinently as may be upon his works when he submits them to your censure. For if he makes no reply, but grants and approves of all you assert, and applauds every period with a eulogy of very right, incomparably well, then you have trepanned him, and it is plain that, though he counsel asked, he played another game, to swell you with the opinion of a name. But to proceed... As some have defined painting to be mute poetry, so there is a sort of silent flattery which has its peculiar commendation. For as hunters are then surest of their game when they pass under the disguise of travellers, shepherds, or husbandmen, and seem not at all intent upon their sport, so the eulogies of a parasite never take more effectually than when he seems least of all to commend you. For he who rises up to a rich man when he comes in company, or who, having begun a motion in the Senate, suddenly breaks off and gives some leading man the liberty of speaking his sense first in the point, such a man's silence more effectually shows the deference he pays the other's judgment than if he had avowedly proclaimed it. And hereupon you shall have them always placed in the boxes at the playhouse, and perched upon the highest seats at other public entertainments, not that they think them suitable to their quality, but merely for the opportunity of gratifying great men by giving them place. Hence it is likewise that they open first in all solemn and public assemblies, only that they may give place to another as an abler speaker, 
and they retract their opinion immediately if any person of authority, riches, or quality contradict them. So that you may perceive all their concessions, cringes, and respects to be but mere courtship and complacence, by this easy observation, that they are usually paid to riches, honour, or the like, rather than to age, art, virtue, or other personal endowments. Thus dealt not a palace with Megabises, one of the Persian nobility, who, pretending once to talk I know not what about lines, shades, and other things peculiar to his art, the painter could not but take him up, telling him that his apprentices yonder, who were grinding colours, gazed strangely upon him, admiring his gold and purple ornaments, while he held his tongue, but now could not choose but titter to hear him offer at a discourse upon an argument so much out of his sphere. And when Croesus asked Solon his opinion of felicity, he told him flatly that he looked upon Tellus, an honest though obscure Athenian, and Byton and Cleobis, as happier than he. But the flatterer will have kings, governors, and men of estates, not only the most signally happy, but the most eminently knowing, the most virtuous, and the most prudent of mankind. And now some cannot endure to hear the Stoics, who centre all true riches, generosity, nobility, and royalty itself, in the person of a wise man, but with a flatterer it is the man of money that is both orator and poet, and, if he pleases, painter and fiddler too, a good wrestler, an excellent footman, or anything, for they never stand with him for the victory in those engagements, as Chrysan, who had the honour to run with Alexander, let him designedly win the race, which the king being told of afterwards was highly disgusted at him. But therefore I like the observation of Carneades, who used to say that young princes and noblemen never arrived to a tolerable perfection in anything they learned except riding, for their preceptors spoiled them at school by extolling all their performances, and their wrestling-masters by always taking the foil, whereas the horse, who knows no distinction betwixt a private man and a magistrate, betwixt the rich and the poor, will certainly throw his rider if he knows not how to sit him, let him be of what quality he pleases. And therefore it was but impertinently said of Bion upon this subject, that he who could praise his ground into a good crop were to blame if he bestowed any other tillage upon it. Tis granted, nor is it improper to command a man if you do him any real kindness thereby. But here is the disparity, that a field cannot be made worse by any commendations bestowed upon it, whereas a man, immoderately praised, is puffed up, burst, and ruined by it. Thus much, then, for the point of praising. Proceed we in the next place to treat of freedom in their reprehensions. And, indeed, it were but reasonable that, as Patroclus put on Achilles' armour and led his war-horse out into the field, yes, durst not for all that venture to wield his spear. So, though the flatterer wear all the other badges and ensigns of a friend, he should not dare to counterfeit the plain frankness of his discourse as being a great, massy, and substantial weapon peculiar to him. But because, to avoid that scandal and offence which their drunken bouts, their little jests, and ludicrous babbling humour might otherwise create, they sometimes put on the face of gravity, and flatter under the visor of a frown, dropping in now and then a word of correction and reproof, let us examine this cheat too amongst the rest. 
and indeed I can compare that trifling insignificant liberty of speech to which he pretends to nothing better than that sham Hercules which Menander introduces in one of his comedies, with a light hollow club upon his shoulder, for, as women's pillows, which seem sufficiently stuffed to bear up their heads, yield and sink under their weight, so this counterfeit freedom in a flatterer's conversation swells big and promises fair, that when it shrinks and contracts itself, it may draw those in with it who lay any stress upon its outward appearance, whereas the genuine and friendly reprehension fixes upon real criminals, causing them grief and trouble indeed, but only what is wholesome and salutary, like honey that corrodes, but yet cleanses the ulcerous parts of the body, and is otherwise both pleasant and profitable. But of this in its proper place. We shall discourse at present of the flatterer who affects a morose, angry, and inexorable behaviour towards all but those upon whom he designs, is peevish and difficult towards his servants, and adverts severely upon the failures of his relations and domestics, neither admires nor respects a stranger, but superciliously contempts him, pardons no man, but by stories and complaints exasperates one against another, thinking by these means to acquire the character of an irreconcilable enemy to all manner of vice, that he may be thought one who would not spare his favourites themselves upon occasion, and would neither act nor speak anything out of a mean and dastardly complacence. And if at any time he undertakes his friend, he feigns himself a mere stranger to his real and considerable crimes. But if he catch him in some petty trifling peccadillo, there he takes his occasion to rant him terribly and thunder him severely off, as, if he see any of his goods out of order, if his house be not very convenient, if his beard be not shaven, or his clothes unfashionable, if his dog or his horse be not well looked after. But if he slight his parents, neglect his children, treat his wife scornfully, his friends and acquaintance disrespectfully, and squander away his estate, here he dares not open his mouth, and it is the safest way to hold his tongue, just as if the master of a wrestling school should indulge his young champion scholar in drinking and wenching, and yet rattle him about his oil cruise and body-brush, or as if a schoolmaster should severely reprove a boy for some little fold in his pen or writing-book, but take no notice of the barbarisms and solecisms in his language. For the parasite is like him who, hearing a ridiculous impertinent orator, finds no fault with his discourse but delivery, blaming him only for having hurt his throat with drinking cold water, or like one who, being to peruse and correct some pitiful scribble, falls foul only upon the coarseness of the paper and the blots and negligence of the transcriber. Thus the parasites about Ptolemy, when he pretended to learning, would wrangle with him till midnight about the propriety of an expression, a verse, or a story, but not a word all this while of his cruelty, insults, superstition, and oppressions of the people, just as if a surgeon should pare a man's nails or cut his hair to cure him of a fistula, when, or other carnous excrescence. End of section 10